He is the executive producer and executive vice president of Mandalay Sports Media, and he is one of the producers of the Last Dance documentary. We welcome John Weinbach onto Hoopsology. How's it going, John? Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. We've been really looking forward to this chat. Um, just some background for you for a couple of minutes. Um, Matt and I pretty much relaunched our podcast because of the Last Dance documentary. Um, it kind of brought us back together. We've been um, childhood friends, huge fan of the Jordan era, and this doc was just such an incredible um, feat. So I just want to thank you and um, everybody that worked on it because it was it's a really incredible um, piece of just – I know it sounds kind of corny, <laughs> Americana. Honestly, it, I don't know what we could have done without that documentary in the pandemic. Um, so I just want to personally, I'm sure Matt feels the same way. Just thanking you uh, for, for the piece of work. It was just really incredible to watch. Well, thank you. I mean, it's obviously a, a, you know a career sort of changing or defining project. It was a huge team effort. Um, you know, starting with uh, you know my partner Mike Tolan with Mandalay Sports Media. You know, sort of getting our arms around this project obviously the NBA and, you know, um, and the, the Jordan folks, but, you know, director Jason Hare, an incredible production team, great editors. And, you know, it's really, um, what can you say? You, you, it's, it's still sort of stunning, <laughs> frankly, even a year later, and I can't believe it's a year later. Um, but, you know, it's very, very rare in any walk of life, forget about just entertainment or sports that you have anything that sort of pops the zeitgeist like that. And, you know, I, I'm biased. I love the shows. I, I had the privilege of obviously being involved with it for four years, um, you know, from the very first deck we did. Um, but um, and I thought it was going to be good and memorable. I, you know, had no way of I don't think any of us had any way of predicting that. A, it would land when it did. B, it would have the impact that it did. Um, and it's just, it's very humbling and gratifying. But thank you, guys. So, John, can you reflect on just the feelings and feedback after the documentary came out? Because there's a lot of media attention over each episode when it aired. And then once it concluded, um, every single sports show was covering. But since then, you know, life has somewhat gotten back to normal. But for you yourself, what feelings have you had just since the documentary has been released in terms? Have you gotten any additional feedback from other people that might have missed it during There Was No Sports and just might have caught it on Netflix a few months later? Uh, what has it been basically since the documentary has been released? Is that that year since? Um, any, any thoughts with that? Well, I mean, it's obviously, you know, been incredible, the reception. I mean, <laughs> How many, you should be so lucky to, like I said, to do anything in life where people are thanking you <laughs> for, for what you do. So, um, you know, I think the part, it's still, honestly, it's surreal um, the way it was rolled out. And and look, we I think we got rewarded in obviously huge ways for our hustle. You know, it's, the story's been told a lot about, you know, look, originally, originally, originally the series was going to come out in like November of 2019 and for various reasons it went later and then it was to June. And then obviously when the pandemic hit, um, you know, that the crazy part of it was, this is how not finished we were. I mean, the, the, the show was seven episodes were pretty much done. Eight episodes when the first one aired, but I can tell you episode nine and 10 were not done. I mean, no, and episode 10 really wasn't done. Um, but uh, it was, uh, March 12th, whatever it was. So Jason Hare, fabulous director, you know, had done all the interviews pretty much maybe save for one or two. And the one person we had not interviewed was John Stockton. And if you remember, 
the early pandemic in the United States was all in, in the state of Washington. And John uh, Stockton lived in Spokane. So I was in LA, you know, we're based in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, Jason, Mike, they said, listen, Jason can't, there's too much of a risk. If he goes to Washington, he can't fly back. You know, we will be stuck. And so you go to Washington, you'll do the interview with, with, with Stockton. So then I made arrangements, the whole thing. And then I asked, you know, the real arbiter of all things in my life, my wife, uh, like, you know, if I should go and she's like, are you blankety blank crazy? You're going to go into the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, you know, no. <laughs> so, um, we ended up scrambling and getting a producer from Seattle and, um, but that's how hectic it was. And that was March 12th. So we were on the air basically a month later, you know? And so the decision was made, um, you know, obviously in retrospect, a genius decision to not only come out earlier, but also this, this rhythm of two a week over five weeks. I mean, there was a thought of, Hey, do we do, do we drop them all at once? And do we do one a week for 10 weeks? I think the cadence was perfect. And you asked about the response. I mean, it was so crazy because at that specific moment, right? Because maybe two months later, all the sports came back. But at that specific moment, not only was there no sports, there was no nothing. So um, every show covered each episode. Sports Center covered each episode like it was game seven of the NBA finals. So, you know, look, that is something legitimately no one can ever probably replicate. And we obviously benefited from that. Um, I still think, you know, the show would have been memorable and the show was, you know, extraordinarily well done. But, you know, that's something that I think all of us are sort of, you know, we acknowledge. And it's just so surreal that we were caught up in that vortex and it ended up obviously being great. Go ahead, Matt. John, I, I wanted to ask, and and I know this this may be an extremely complicated question. In fact, I think it is. So if you can answer uh, simply or, or in layman's terms for um, someone ignorant about movie producing like myself, I, I've heard producers being compared to like sports GMs. Can you describe like kind of your role in this project overall uh, and, and some of those moving pieces and how that compared like with the last dance compared to other projects? Other projects yeah. I mean, you know, they, it's, it's hard. I come from a reporting background. I was a reporter. I, I used to be a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. And so I'm used to just like doing, right? It's all on me. Like I got to get the interview. I got to, you know, arrange it. Um, production is more of a team effort. But the easiest way to describe what does a producer do? Producer gets to yes. Right. So whatever that means, you got to get to yes, you got to get it done. So in this one, we had a lot of, you know, entities, a lot of stakeholders. You have the NBA that put in the work 20 years ago, you know, from literally, you know, Adam Silver, who was the one who really made the project. And Andy Thompson, who was the you know producer in the ground. And Greg Winnick was the executive producer of NBA Entertainment. You have all these people at the NBA. And then obviously you have the Michael Jordan folks. And then you have, you know, SD Portnoy, Curtis Polk. These are people who've been with Michael a long time, you know, and then you have, you know, obviously our team with Mandalay, then you have our production team, you know, Jason had done 30 for 30s, his team, you know, it, and it should not go without notice. Jake Rogal, Matt Max, and Nina Kristich, like just the best, right? And then we had these editors and then we had, you know, Chad Beck and Devin Goodcannon. These are great, all people. So where do I fit in on that? It depended at various stages of the project, right? So in some cases, it was trying to get interviews. In other cases, it was like, okay, 
uh, we have, we want to get this piece of music and we got to work with this label and that thing. And what are we going to do for what music are we going to put in for like when the bulls go to Paris in episode one, like, should that be French hip hop or should it be American hip hop? You know? And then in other instances, it was like literally calling Warner brothers to get permission to use photos that were taken backstage during space jam. <laughs> and then, call, you know, so it's really a mix of organizational, creative, logistics, financial. It just depended on the thing. I mean, look, my, by nature, I'm a, was a creator, you know, like I've directed films, I've, you know, done, been in that chair. And so those are obviously the most fun things is like, you know, for me, probably most memorable was the interview actually with Steve Kerr, which we, which we did in New York, um, which was just he's a really special guy and the interview w was really fantastic. And so, you know, the, the crew was quite small for a lot of these interviews, you know, so it wasn't like there were 50 people at all the interviews, quite, quite the opposite. So um, that one was, was really special. So, I mean, if that helps answer your question. It just depends on the show. Like I'm directing a documentary now, uh, in which case I'm acting more like the director in the case, but I'm doing producing too. So I get a rate, I arrange the interviews. I tend to be pretty hands-on. Awesome. Go ahead, Justin. I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's fascinating. It's a lot Thank easier. You. you know, it's funny because because I used to be a reporter, it's like when I transitioned into production, you know, my parents would ask the same thing, like, well, what do you do? <laughs> like, what does a producer do? And it really just depends on on the project and the specific other members of the team. I mean, this was, a, as you might imagine, a, a pretty big one. Um, yeah. But but actually, relatively speaking, there are a lot of stakeholders, a lot of different people involved, but the actual crew wasn't that large. What challenges or I'm excuse me, what feedback did you get that you didn't expect that you were like, huh, I didn't necessarily think I would get that type of feedback when the documentary came out? Because usually it's very polarizing. The Bulls are such a beloved team. But was there any type of feedback that you got from an unexpected source that kind of made you um, think? Not in like a negative way, but just – No, I know something. what you're saying. I mean, I think, I think the – you know, all, all cards on the table. Look, I grew up in LA. I was a massive Laker fan. I did not like the Bulls. You know, I did not hate the Bulls to the degree I hated the Pistons and the Celtics. We had that in common. Bulls fans and Laker fans, like, both hated those two entities. Worse. Um, I think the there's a couple things. I think people respond just – it elicits a response. The intensity of Michael Jordan um, – the inability to let things go um, and the candor, you know, like Michael came to play, you know, in the most basic way with the, with the film. And that obviously, you know, it's one of these things where everybody feels they know Michael Jordan in some way, because you've worn his shoes or you know, whatever, but you know, he had not been that um, vocal in that present as a voice in a long time. And so I think, I think that what surprised me, I guess, was the way, the degree to which it sort of popped the zeitgeist globally at the same time. And that's, you know, partly a function of Netflix and and, and the pandemic. And um, I think the, the, like, the gratitude people have about just having something that was well done, brought them back to a nostalgic time. And I think there's, you know, look, I'm I'm 44, like there's a, nostalgia among people my age who now we have kids about that time when we were in college or for people who were a little bit younger when they were in high school you know so that's 
we're all sort of like we're we're now at the age that like our parents were in the 80s and when there was all the like 19 you know the 60s nostalgia so there's an enormous amount of like 90s nostalgia now and so i think all of those factors and layered on top of it this insanity of the pandemic combined to make this really really unique that Absolutely. i think is you know that's just the thing i got is like how moved people were Awesome. John, I'm curious, you mentioned the interview with Steve Kerr being kind of one of your, your favorite interviews of the documentary. Did you have anything else in the documentary, any particular point? I mean, you mentioned it's it's a fantastic project, and I agree there, there are so many high points in it. Did you personally have a, a point in that documentary that was your favorite to see? Ooh, tough question. So the, uh, I generally say... It's like you know, picking your kids or whatever. I, I right. think I think episode seven is my favorite. I love episode one. I like I love the Phil episode. Um, I think episode seven is the strongest. I mean, they're all strong. I, I, I think it's the you know it, it hits all the hot buttons. Gambling, you know, Michael's father's death, um, his retirement, the you know the first retirement, and. Um, Obviously, I think it also has this incredible sort of emotional build to the end. And it's that moment when, you know, Michael gets emotional and the, Jason asked him, you know, about the sense that people didn't like him, you know, and, and he says, you know, I, I'm going to paraphrase, but you know, I never asked anyone to do anything I wasn't willing to do. And he, and he basically, you know, gets right on the cusp of tears. And that was like in hour one of interview day one, you know, and look, I love the the device of when we showed him the, the, the iPad. And that's kind of a funny one too, because absolutely we didn't start with that, you know, like it, it just became this um, device. And, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people have done in some way, shape or form just to sort of jog people's memory. Hey, look at this. But, but it, it worked a really incredible effect. And, um, and that was something, you know, again, from the first cut of the first episode, first rough cut, when that was in, it was like, that's going to be really memorable. You know, and that's people are going to, you know, and Isaiah, he's not going to tell me he's not still an asshole. <laughs> um, and I think when you have icons like that, letting their guard down, it's gold, you know, and there's not many people like Michael Jordan. And so, you know, I think whatever he would have said would have been newsworthy, but that he said it the way he did and that he was clearly like, you know, emotional about it. It's great. I would say episode seven is my is, is the one that I think kind of resonates or is most powerful. And I love episode nine. Um, that's the uh, uh, what's the first half? I'm gonna. This is terrible. But it's the one with Kerr as well. It's sort of the the '97 season, and then and then and then Kerr. Um, and uh, and episode top of episode ten is great with Reggie Miller. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff. <laughs> absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, to your point, I think the the iPad passing, I think that'll be a device in documentaries moving forward, too, just because of getting that instant reaction from Jordan uh, was was just incredible. Well, I'll tell you, as someone like I'm a, you know, a student of history, I the only I wouldn't say a concern. There was concern you know, while we were making it because you have these parallel storylines, right? We keep coming back to the 97, 98 season, but there's like, you know, we, we go back to you know, a, an episode on Scottie Pippen or Phil Jackson or, you know, Dennis Rodman. And I think uh, that was one thing I was pleasantly surprised that people were able to follow, even if they couldn't maybe necessarily know 
because um, there's one point in the film where like when we're with Rodman and you know you're sort of you see Rodman on the Pistons and, and then you see him on the Spurs and then, he's, and then he, wait, he's on the the Bulls and I worried oh my god like people might you know do that and pleasantly I mean it was never confusing to me but I'm a one percenter of NBA geekery so like that way it's easy but um, it was really gratifying that like guess what like you tell the story and you give some cues like people will follow it's not that hard and so um that was really gratifying you know sort of from the producerial point of view that like that was a win for us <laughs> what aspects of the documentary would you change if you can go back in time um if you had more time if if everything was like perfect scenario what aspects would you change um would you i don't know that i would change anything i think that okay. if anything it would be adding i mean look you could do another we could have done i think that it was probably in the neighborhood of like 18 minutes, maybe not even that much on Phil Jackson. You know, I mean, we could have done more on Phil Jackson. We could have in a perfect world. Look, I would have loved to, we would have loved to spend sort of current day time with Michael Jordan, you know, in his current role as owner of the Hornets, you know, see what that, what lessons have been learned and that kind of thing. But, you know, this was a, you know, our, it was all about anchoring it in that time. And then looking backward, not, not, it's not about now. And so I think, um, that you know if you'd ask me you know if i could do anything yes we could have probably done 12 episodes you know <laughs> but um but i think you know um it was uh, it's a special it will always be special because of the subject matter when it landed and obviously the the reception given this the success that this documentary had and that you know, we know there's there's tons of footage from that season. Could you see like a future, like Last Dance Two, being made or anything like that? And if it's top secret, I understand. No, uh, I mean, but... no. I'll tell you the, the the reality is is like you know, there was a lot of footage, um, and it was shot on film. The reality is is look, they they sort of got more footage as the season went along. The answer is no. There's not going to be a second one, <laughs> um, but. Uh, <laughs> But, but, you know, the NBA had to sort of work out their rhythm with shooting. So there was a lot of hours and there's obviously some incredible material that, that the NBA entertainment guys were great captured. But there's also a lot of, you know, getting off on the tarmac in Indianapolis in February. You know what I mean? So like there's because they were working out themselves, you know, the rhythm of access and and remember they were not using iphones and dslrs they were using like you know (laughs) cameras and sound guys with you know stuff so um it was a harder thing to do and so um yeah i mean i i I don't think there would be more i i think um it's also remember the time and and people weren't around with cameras on everybody's phone so i think everybody was a little less sort of like, you know, aware of the camera as much. They weren't playing to it as much. I mean, they were also a little bit, it was a bigger, more, uh, um, uh, what it, it, like it was just a bigger deal to deal with, you know, to have a crew in your face. But at the same time, I think we, the, the culture has changed and now people are just more used to it. So there, there's a little less novelty. And also there's something about the film. I mean, if you grew up in, the nineties, or if you grew up even in the early two thousands, like your whole exi- way of consuming Michael Jordan was in a four by three television screen. And this was on film and it felt more cinematic. So, you know, that was actually one of the real joys for me is because the whole, the whole time of production, we're looking at sort of 
quote, down-resed footage. You know, it's got a big watermark on it and it doesn't look like that. And so it was so cool that, you know, when we saw it on, and I saw it on TV, I would see it in the later episodes because we just didn't have time. They were already high-resing it early, but it was really cool in the early episodes to see it like the way it was meant to be seen, which was, which was really cool. John, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. Uh, please let our listeners and viewers know where you can find you on social media and also what else you're up to this year. Oh, lots. Uh, there's a couple projects I'm not at liberty to discuss. One is basketball related. One is baseball related. Um, another one is X Games related. And I, I hate being that guy, but I'm, I, I can't. But we're, listen, we're lucky we've been, uh, been very busy. Uh, Manly Sports Media. What's my Twitter? I'm uh, at JB Weinbach. And uh, listen, I'd love to come back. I, I'm sorry I had to rush, but, uh, but thanks for having me on. Uh, happy to talk anytime. Such no a worries, pleasure, John. John. Thank yeah, you so this much. This was incredible. We will definitely have you back. We have tons of more questions. <laughs> Wait, I see Lobos. Is there like a is it a is it New Mexico in the house? Yes, we're both uh, born right. and raised Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah. So you must have. I mean, obviously, you're Luke Longley fans. Yes. <laughs> yes. We have tons of questions about that. <laughs> we'll say that for next interview. Nice. <laughs> was it also uh, Michael Cooper, University of New Mexico? Correct. Yes. Oh, looks like we lost John. Looks like we lost John. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, what a great time talking to him. And thank you again for John for joining yeah, us. <laughs> for sure. What a great chat it was with him.